Have you heard that Bitcoin uses energy? You might have heard that it uses a lot of energy. There are a lot of misconceptions about Bitcoin's relationship with energy, and the truth is that Bitcoin incentivizes innovation in the energy sector. It's a technology that allows human beings to turn wasted energy into money, which means energy companies now have the ability to make money using wasted energy. And that possibility could transform the conversation around renewable power. You're listening to The Block Reward, show where we help you understand Bitcoin without having to be obsessed with it. I'm Scott Deedles. I'm the founder and CEO of Block Rewards. And part of our mission in bringing Bitcoin to the workplace is helping people understand how it will help them. This week, we're talking about energy and how Bitcoin is going to change the way we think about how we use it, how we store it, and how we secure it. Our guest today is Lisa Huff. Lisa is a Bitcoin thought leader with a deep background in the energy sector and a diverse working experience in Bitcoin. She has worked with Unchained Capital, which is one of the world's top Bitcoin companies. And presently, she's the VP of Strategic Relationships at Custodia Bank, which is the first American bank to have Bitcoin services offered in-house. Lisa's background in energy has really given her a rich understanding of Bitcoin's importance, and I'm thrilled to have her on the show to share some of those ideas. I hope you enjoy. Welcome to another episode of the Block Reward Podcast. Our guest this week is Lisa Huff. Super excited to have you on the show. Welcome, Lisa. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be with you today on this epic day. It is a very big day. Air these a little bit in delay. So for our listeners, this is day one of Bitcoin ETFs trading live in the U.S. And uh, there's already been a lot of, should we say, contentious uh things that have happened in this short few hours? Definitely. And and Scott, that was such a good point that you said first day of ETF trading in the US because you all in Canada have had ETFs for three years. Yeah. Yeah. Up here in America's hat, we've we've had Bitcoin ETFs for a while. And it's funny because I've actually had Canadian people sort of look at that and think this is a, a reason why the U.S. the impact of U.S. Bitcoin ETFs will be minimal because the products themselves have already existed. And it's like, well, I, I don't think American investors would really look for some obscure Canadian Bitcoin ETF. And I, I but maybe I'm wrong. I don't think American investors know anything about Bitcoin, and that's okay. Here we are. We'll, we'll just keep talking about it. We've we've been talking about it for years, but we'll just start over and keep doing it because it's so much fun. You know a lot about Bitcoin, and I'm very excited to have our audience enjoy some of your thoughts. I like to start the show every week with asking our guests a very simple question for their own definition of what Bitcoin actually is. So, Lisa, what, what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is the only form of property that can be held by every human on Earth, regardless of property, right? You know, it's like I always say there there is no, there isn't a bad answer, but every answer answer is so great. Can you expand on that concept a little bit for somebody who might have just heard what you said and and have it not immediately register? Like, how is Bitcoin even property? Yeah. So most people might be surprised. I, I was surprised to find out that in the U.S., we're actually not the country in the world with the greatest property right. So there's a chart somewhere. I, if I'd known you were going to ask me this question, um, I would have I would have looked it up for you because I think we're like 13th on the list of the strength of our property rights. And for your listeners, there are so many places that it should be obvious where folks, you know, don't have property rights. If you think about North Korea, probably most people can get their head around the fact that the North Koreans may not be supportive of their citizens having access to wealth and then perhaps leaving their country. But it's actually much greater than that. People all over the world in places that you would think, you know, have maybe equal property rights to the US don't. You know, people fight for the right to hold wealth in you know, in in all forms. And dollars can be confiscated, property can be confiscated, art can be confiscated. You know, if if you aren't in your mind sort of thinking about what the Jews leaving Germany in World War II looks like, I urge you to conjure up those images of people carrying suitcases and struggling with children and, you know, wearing all of their clothes and carrying their candlesticks. Bitcoin is the first time in the history of humanity where every person on earth can own it, right? And and we always talk about if you just memorize 12 words, you know, you could take it with you anywhere. I don't know. I think 12, to, to me, that seems daunting to memorize 12 words until you begin to think of all of the things that you know that are 12 words or greater right? The Lord's Prayer, the Pledge of Allegiance. I mean, there's all sorts of things that 
that we practice and we ingrain in our mind. And certainly if our lives depended on it, we could we could memorize 12 words. So this is the first time in the history of humanity that you have the ability to walk across a border with 100% of your wealth. Yeah, I still know every word to New Kids on the Block step by step. And that was like 30 plus years ago that I plunked those in my noodle. So uh, yeah, when you put it that way, 12 words doesn't seem so daunting at all. Maybe we should just take a step back for a second. And if you could tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and your background, you've done a lot of cool things in Bitcoin, but uh, but also prior to. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So I mean, I grew up in Texas. My dad was in the energy business. I got into energy sorely on a fluke. I graduated from college. And at that time, we were sending out letters in eight and a half by 11 envelopes, you know, mailing it like to the company. And I was answering ads in the Houston Chronicle. I happened to stumble upon one that turned out to be the commodities trading desk for Solomon Brothers. It's a company called Fibro Energy. And I mailed in my resume and, you know, lo and behold, complete fluke. I'm sure 100% luck. 400 people applied and two of us got jobs. And I always say, in case he's ever listening, which I'm sure he's not, but, and I actually, I think he's Canadian. The gentleman that also got the job, his name is Toby Sands. And Toby was, I don't know, Toby could have been like an early cryptographer. Toby was so bright. He would write all of these programs. We worked on a risk management desk together. And I always say, he did all the work. Like I didn't know what I was doing when I got there. And in fact, a friend asked the night before I started, will you be on the equities desk or the commodities desk? And I said, I don't even know what either of those are. I'll let you know tomorrow. Right. And it turns out I was on a heavy fuels desk. I was in the risk management group, which meant that we put all the trades into a, I don't even remember what the program was, but into a program and calculated PL and risk and you know, rolled all those books up for every trader and presented them to the management team every day. So that led to me, you know, taking kind of like a look around really early into that job, going, these guys are smart, but they're not any smarter than I am. And there's no reason why I can't have one of those jobs. And at the time, I thought I was making a fortune. I mean, I, I graduated and I think the first year I made like, I think my base salary was 28 or 29,000. And then I had maybe like a $7,000 bonus or something. So I thought I was doing really well, but I knew that the people around me were doing much better. And I just thought, well, if they can, you know, no, nobody's born like Bitcoin. Nobody is born knowing Bitcoin. No one is born being able to trade commodities. I'll just figure out what I need to know. And, you know, I want to live a nice life. I'm going to go have one of those jobs. So that's what I did. So I ended up spending most of my career in the energy business, traded natural gas for a long time. The job that I left when I left trading, I worked for PG&E Energy Company. Our trading desk was actually just outside of Washington, D.C. in Bethesda, Maryland. We had a bunch of power guys and a bunch of nat gas people. And, you know, I traded physical and financial. I was the I ran our East Coast trading for gas, which taught me a whole lot about how product moves, how demand can quickly shift. So we had 4,500 megawatts under management that we were responsible for sending fuel to those plants. You know, so to like fast forward to Bitcoin, I'm hugely interested in the mining space. I see application for mining all across the energy channels. You know, it really gives folks opportunity to create efficiencies. It's very creative, right? Helps them monetize where they haven't been able to monetize previously. I want to talk to you about this concept. And I, I don't, I'm not sure if you've coined this term, but I'm, I'm assuming you did of monetizing molecules. Yeah, I think I did. Yeah, I, I say frequently, I, it, it allows you to monetize every molecule. And, and here's what I mean by that. Take a power producer, and, and this is actually a fact. So one of the largest power producers in the United States is based in Texas. And about 4% of the time, they give away their power for free or they pay someone to take their power. They are creating more than the market demands. And so rather than shut off, they pay to have power taken from them. Not not dissimilar to what happens in Canada, actually. You all do the same thing. I think you pay the U.S. in some crazy agreement also. You know, if you drop a Bitcoin miner on site or nearby those power generation facilities, the Bitcoin miners can absorb that energy and then pay the power producer for the power, right? So it was interesting about more than three years ago, probably I went and talked to an executive team at a power producer. And I know the president and CEO very well. Our kids were in school together. 
And he was kind enough to invite me up to their beautiful office. And I sat down with them and they were super polite and they listened to everything I had to say. And at the end of the meeting, we're like, Lisa, thank you so much for stopping by. This was really interesting. We're never going to do this. Our stakeholders would never allow us to participate in Bitcoin. Fast forward, you know, that company is now has had conversations with ERCOT here in Texas about mining Bitcoin, right? It's, it's a huge way for them to monetize assets. And, you know, if you ask yourself, like, how how much of the time does Apple pay someone to take a phone? Like zero, right? Coca-Cola doesn't pay us to drink their products. It, it's, it, there's no reason why energy companies should be giving away energy. But they do. Or they may not give it away, but they may not be able to capture all the value that is otherwise now in the market because of Bitcoin mining. So there are many places where gas prices. Uh, so natural gas is, is traded by location. I should start start there. So it's it's traded in many locations, many pipelines that are spider webs across the United States. At times, there's no demand in certain areas where there's production or where there's gas that's being sold. And so you either have the choice of shutting off production or you need to, you know, pay the pipeline basically to take the gas. Why would you ever do that? Right. If you had an alternative, which now you do, you have Bitcoin mining, you don't ever need to sell into the Waha gas market, which last year in the last 12 months has traded negative two dollars to positive eight dollars. You always can have 250 gas or 450, right, depending on the price of Bitcoin. It's like this phenomenal boom to the energy industry. And most of the companies are figuring it out, but I would say largely have not yet fully comprehended how beneficial this will be. Yeah, this is another one of those things that's not priced in. You you have an, a pinned tweet that says something to the effect, I'm not going to get it exactly right, but that every energy company has a responsibility to their shareholders to monetize every molecule. They do, don't they? It would be like an, an S&P. It would be like Apple saying, oh, well, we know that computers are out there, but we're still going to do everything by hand. We're going to do all of our our calculations by hand, right? Like nobody does that. We've we've moved on. We're in the digital age. We have the ability to monetize molecules that we couldn't before. Yeah, I, I do think that the energy companies will be the next big wave of adopters. And we are beginning to see that. You know, we are beginning to see partnerships with the miners all over the world. And I love greed. I think greed is a great motivator. You can hate Bitcoin. You can think it's used by terrorists. You can believe Elizabeth Warren. You can believe the mainstream media negative rhetoric. But at the end of the day, if I'm an energy company and it allows me to monetize 4% of molecules that I could not monetize otherwise, don't I love Bitcoin mining? Don't I embrace it? There's a great sort of viral clip of Saifedean explaining this concept to Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you've seen it. It's really nailing this idea, which I think is kind of abstract and eludes people like you're actually using Bitcoin mining to convert stranded energy into money. And you can send that money anywhere in the world in lieu of being able to send the electricity anywhere in the world. And, you know, theoretically, somewhere someone somewhere else can turn that money back into electricity where, where they need it. And yeah, so when I think about your idea of monetizing molecules, like it's this weird idea that Bitcoin is kind of energy-backed money. It's a way for us to turn stranded energy. And I, I also think people don't really understand energy grids very well. And the idea that, you know, so much, uh, you know, power plants don't get throttled up and down, like they, they kind of run full full tilt. And so, you know, depending on the usage, the, the electricity usage of day, night, time, whatever, a lot of it, energy gets wasted. Energy, I think, is the coolest part of Bitcoin. I mean, I was in love with Bitcoin before I, I really began to unlock the breadth of how the energy companies will be involved in this. I knew they would be, but I didn't I didn't have full understanding. And in fact, I still learn. I mean, I go to meetings and sit down with folks and, and talk through different ideas on how the energy companies might use Bitcoin mining, you know, weekly, monthly, daily basis. I'll have a conversation and somebody else will have a, an idea. It, it's, it's fascinating. It is absolutely going to globally change the efficiency of all energy production and, and allow us to spread and, and reduce energy poverty across the world. And again, I guess a statistic that probably most people don't understand is that seventy percent of the world lives in a state of energy poverty. And what does that mean? They have access to energy less than four hours a day. Right? Like, think about that. If that were us in the U.S. or in Canada, I mean, it would be Armageddon. But most of the world lives 
with less than four hours of energy on a daily basis. I think it's the productivity that's lost by those individuals and, and lost as a collective, as a society, because those individuals don't have access to light so they can read or light so they can code or, you know, they're not somewhere warm or safe. Or, and Bitcoin mining is going to let us slowly improve conditions for people all over the world. We're, we're already seeing it. Makes me think of those, you see sort of uh, videos online of rolling blackouts happening in Johannesburg or you know, even this where this really odd time where Europe is sort of committing energy suicide right now. And this energy poverty idea is something I think the Western world has sort of taken for granted, but we are in the middle of some disastrous policy decisions. <laughs> Maybe this is another thing hopefully Bitcoin can fix or avert. Well, energy security is national security, right? I was so, I, I haven't looked into this, so I, I, I can only repeat the headline, but I saw a headline the other day that said BlackRock is laying off 600 people, I think, and, and it a lot of it was in their ESG group, right? Nothing makes me happier. ESG was such a narrative of socialized garbage around the fact that, you know, energy usage is somehow uh, catastrophic and, you know, that we should all stop using energy, that we should all, you know, endure more discomfort so that we can use less energy, right? Like, I, I don't blame BlackRock at all, but, you know, they were launching funds around companies that had, you know, green energy policies and they wrapped it up with some other things. But the head of that group left a couple of years ago, I think, maybe within the last like 18 months, he left. And when he did, he said, look, I mean, this isn't working. This wasn't profitable. The investors that bought the ESG ETFs didn't do well. You know, kind of the writing was on the wall there, right? Because at the end of the day, again, Greed is good. If an investor buys an ESG fund and it underperforms, greatly underperforms, how righteous will that investor be? Will they stay in an underperforming asset because they want to greenwash themselves? We're, we're all greedy. Greed is good, you know, is is allowing us to move forward, really move forward the development of of energy on a global scale that will will be beneficial to humanity. And, and let the free market determine what succeeds and fails and what products are successful and not. I couldn't agree more. Free market. That's an undervalued concept, I think. Yeah, totally. I want to ask you about maybe just to take it down a notch. So Bitcoin uses energy. And sometimes this has been a reason why people want to think Bitcoin is bad. Why is it a good thing that Bitcoin uses energy? Well, it's a, it's a good thing that Bitcoin uses energy because that's what guarantees its authenticity, right? If it didn't use energy and someone were making it up out of thin air, like someone giving you an IOU for an ice cream cone, right? It takes energy to make ice cream. I'd rather have the ice cream than someone giving me an IOU for an ice cream or telling me to enjoy this air sandwich. I mean, it, energy is required to make anything that humans use and that make us more productive, right? Ener energy is the is at the root of everything, maybe good and evil, but but energy is at the root of all productivity. Period. Yes, Bitcoin does use a lot of energy. I think though that we need to move past the conversation of it uses a lot of energy, therefore it's bad. And we can look to examples that are being set by, you know, the Bitcoin mining community. I think Marathon has announced in the last couple of months that they're they're mining off of a landfill, right? That was energy that was not being utilized at all. We're seeing hydroelectric dams that are now uh, able to be used to mine Bitcoin. I was speaking with someone recently at a conference who was telling me that he's basically built a refinery of sorts to take discarded tires. And he distills these tires into like five products and then sells them on the market. Part of that is using the heat from the tire distillation to mine Bitcoin. Right? It's pretty cool because actually in his business model, someone's paying him to take tires. And then he's taking the tires and he's mining Bitcoin with the energy that's coming from that process. But then he's also selling diesel fuel and he's selling, like, I think even like down to um, bare materials, like, uh, I don't know, I can't remember if it's lithium or anyway, he's distilling into multiple products and selling it, right? Otherwise, those tires would just be sitting in a landfill serving no one. And this is kind of what makes the idea of being able to monetize energy so exciting because we take this free market concept and all of a sudden you unleash human ingenuity to solve problems in a way that's now possible to make money on. Yeah, there, there are so many examples of, I mean, even like the, the base concept of taking flared gas, which otherwise it's going to get burnt anyways. 
So why not create create some kind of incentive to do something with that electricity and and turn it into something beneficial? Yeah. Somebody was recently telling me that there there is a I can't remember what country it is in. I'm not sure I tell you anyway because I don't know that they've they're publicly talking about this project. But there's a Bitcoin mining company that has gone into a jungle where there is an oil pipeline and the oil pipeline infrastructure exists. So the oil is being uh, transported out of the jungle amidst, you know, treacherous topography, right? So up, up big inclines and across topography that that would be very challenging if possible at all, which it probably wouldn't be to build natural gas transportation there. So what is the company doing that has the rights to the minerals? They're flaring it all in the middle of a jungle, right? In the middle of like when we think about this area, we think, oh my gosh, the air must be so pure and look at all the flora and the fauna and the cure of cancers here. Like our mind spins. But really what's happening is that there's gas that's being flared into the atmosphere right there. Now they've got Bitcoin miners who were there saying, let's partner. We'll use your gas right here on site. We'll spin up mining facilities. We'll, we'll be a buyer of your gas. So again, it's accretive to the energy owner, whoever owns those molecules, it's accretive. And for the, you know, hope, hopefully they're, um, they've structured the deal whereby the, the energy owner can keep some of the Bitcoin. I've seen these deals happen over the last couple of years, and many times the energy owner has no interest in the Bitcoin. I bet that changes with the release of the ETF and the nonstop advertising for Bitcoin on television. I bet they start to go, maybe we should keep some of the Bitcoin. And I, and I, don't, I know the Bitcoin miners have said, you know, let's talk about how we share revenue. You know, do you want dollars in Bitcoin or do you just want dollars or, you know, how do we look at this? It's not as though the Bitcoin miners aren't amenable to sharing the Bitcoin. I don't know. There's there's so many cool things happening with regard to energy and Bitcoin. Totally. I mean, I think about like, you know, even the idea that energy today is is priced globally in U.S. dollars. And that's really not that different than your analogy of the IOU for the ice cream cone. So energy is real. If it's oil, whatever you want to call it, is being traded. And it's being traded for this thing that, that absolutely creates no effort at all to produce. And other countries buy and sell using that thing that they don't even get to produce. So like they have to price their energy deals in American dollars, even though they don't even get to make that thing that gets it's made for free out of nothing. It's totally bizarre. It is an incredible hoax that has gone on for decades, right? Can you imagine that you're that you are Russia and you're producing oil for all of these years, selling it into the market and being forced to sell it for dollars? Now, maybe that was great. Maybe they were happy with that arrangement forever. I would probably argue that after the sanctions, they became leery of having any dollar-denominated assets. But for forcing other, uh, our ability to force other countries to use dollars is a window that is closing quickly, and I think that's a good thing. I think eventually we have oil that's priced in Bitcoin. Maybe oil is priced in a basket of commodities before it gets to solely Bitcoin. I don't know why you'd, I mean, I do know why you do that. I don't think it makes sense to have it priced in a basket of, you know, if it's gold or, you know, whatever the other, um, maybe it's some dollars, maybe it's some other currencies. I think it makes the most sense to price oil in Bitcoin, obviously, because it's non-confiscatable. It's non-jurisdictional. It can't be diluted. It makes me think about, uh, you know, Parker has, Parker Lewis has this great take on why Bitcoin can't be an inflation hedge just yet, because something can't be an inflation hedge when only 0.1% of people understand what it does. And I almost think the same thing applies to pricing Bitcoin and energy. Like the, the biggest obstacle is probably just the number of people understanding the mechanics of how Bitcoin as a currency works. I want to ask you about so one of the cool things with Bitcoin mining and the, the activity that happens in Bitcoin mining is that it's measurable. So there's there's a separate metric called called exahash, which is sort of a, a way for people to visualize the, the the growth of the infrastructure that's happening globally in Bitcoin mining. And it's a cool chart to check out if you're listening and you never have. It's it's way more uh, a vertical line than the price has been. What do you think about as we're talking about energy trading? 
not every country has private energy. And so in lots of countries that are energy producing countries, it's either nationalized or, you know, the, the state's heavily involved in energy production. Do you think countries are already involved or heavily involved in mining Bitcoin? And I ask that because of the uh, this exahash number is really growing at such a rate that it, it almost might be hard to explain if it was just private industry. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to answer that. I do want to touch back on Parker Lewis. So one of the videos that I now share as a first stop on your Bitcoin journey tour is Parker's latest kind of big speaking engagement. I think it was called at Old Parkland, which is in Dallas. I highly, highly recommend that viewers go watch that. It really helps you anchor to the idea that, you know, Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. And, and just as you said, you know, dissemination of information is is really such a large part of, of Bitcoin and pricing and all that. So I think it's called Old Parkland. So go Google it. It's on YouTube. I think it's had 250,000 views or something already. I've probably watched it three times. I used to work for Parker. I adore him. I think I've learned more from Parker than anyone else in Bitcoin. Definitely one of the best minds in the space, for sure. It's amazing. Um, but do I think that other countries, do I think countries are, are mining? For sure. We still see hash, hash rate in China. I would largely believe that that's owned by the state. Do I think that the Russians are mining? Absolutely. I think, right? I mean, we've been at this for 15 years. I would think they are. Yeah. And I think, you know, this is where there is a little bit of a fog around Bitcoin generally, um, but it's, it's the way sort of like geopolitics and, and clandestine stuff works is that if countries you know, they have smart people, intelligence agencies, whatever. It, it's it's foolish to think that there is nobody in the CIA that has properly understood Bitcoin or in, in the at upper levels of the Chinese government or uh, Russia. I think it's, it's still a small number of people globally, but some of these people work in government. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. OK, well, so I want to like tie this back to not only the greed thing, but also just from a very practical standpoint, if when you first got into Bitcoin, if so I'll tell you what, my, what happened with me. I got into Bitcoin, I started learning about it and I thought, okay, I have to buy some of this. All right, where do I buy Bitcoin? And I'm like searching the web for a place to, I'm asking the web, where do I go buy Bitcoin? And then all these funky exchanges, some of which weren't in the US are popping up and I'm thinking, cannot send dollars here. I will never see anything ever again, right? Like I think that's, a step that countries take also. And and the economics of mining, I mean, I don't know what it is today, but I think it's like you can mine for, for much less input than what the current price output is. So I think you can mine for under 25,000 if you have access to cheap energy. So if you're an energy producing nation, of course you're mining, right? Are you going to mine for 25,000 or 30,000 and Bitcoin's trading 50? Of course. So this Kind of come back to this uh, earlier statement you said about energy security as national security. What do you think about Bitcoin then being a, a part of national security? Like if, if it somehow if energy becomes priced in Bitcoin, what what will that mean for or what might that mean for the way nation states consider Bitcoin? Yeah, I'll send you a YouTube that I watched the other day again. And and I when I watch a YouTube, I always take notes. I always have yellow notepads with me. I've just stacks and stacks of them at this point. It's a Jason Lowry, and he really addresses this. And I, actually, I think it's a TED Talk. It's about 14 minutes long. So if someone's watching, you could probably just go find it, but I'll send it to you. You can link it in your show notes. He really talks about Bitcoin as national security because it's the only way that we have to secure cyberspace and that we really have ignored cyber true cybersecurity on a national level. I think that's an ironic statement to make today, given the SEC's Twitter was hacked and they didn't have UFA turned on. I mean, that, or that's, that's the story. <laughs> right? Case in point, our government is being hacked. We are not adequately deploying resources to protect our national security. So if their Twitter's being hacked, what's to say that they don't hack the New York Stock Exchange? What's to say that they don't hack our energy grids? What's to say we don't know? So go watch the Jason Lowry. I'm I'm definitely not an expert on how how Bitcoin solves that. I do think from an energy standpoint, we've learned our lesson that, you know, onshore production of energy is energy security. You know, the Russian pipeline blowing up and then the threat to Germany and other countries that depended on Russia for power, you know, Russia, Germany shutting down their power generation plants because they viewed them as being dirty energy, which 
now they've changed natural gas was dirty like three years ago, but now it's clean. Like, stop. You, you have to make energy, even if it's dirty energy, right? You have to have security for your, your citizens. You have to have the ability to run your networks and to protect your country, right? Like you're, you might have to get your hands dirty. And by the way, you've got China who's building a coal plant every month or five or whatever the number is. I mean, it's, it's a big number of coal plants that are being built and used in China. And it's helping their people, you know, Im- improve their quality of living. You, you have to have energy for improved quality of living. So as we see first world countries decrease their onshore energy production, it's a decrease in national security. One of the things that I get often as a criticism about Bitcoin is that Berkshire Hathaway and uh, recently passed Charlie Munger, they, you know, had negative things to say about it, never invested in it. I've, I've seen you talk about this. There's an interesting subtext of Berkshire Hathaway's energy plays in Texas specifically that may have provided some reason for them to have a, a less than rosy color on Bitcoin. Can you, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. I don't have that up in front of me, so I'll I'll completely wing the statistics, but but the point will be the same. So Berkshire Energy came to the state of Texas and said, hey, you had this winter storm and it was terribly destructive and people died and we'll ride in on a white horse and we will build 10 peaker plants in Texas. And that way, the next time you have this massive, you know, fluctuation in demand for energy and your existing energy sources can't meet the demand, these peaker plants will turn on and they will save you. What they wanted was a return on their investment that was locked in. And so I I think their investment was, I wish I'd pulled it up, but they were going to put in quite, quite a bit of money. And in return, they wanted like a 10% return on their investment that was guaranteed. Now, with those those peaker plants, um, they actually get paid 100% of the time whether or not they run. And in Texas, we have free market energy. So the market sets the price. So us paying Berkshire Hathaway is in direct conflict to market sets the price. I think it was like, I think it was 10 plants and they were each going to be five megawatts. So five megawatts, 10, maybe, I care. It's it, Anyway, it's it was a lot of energy that would be available in a peak demand period. Well, if you look at something like Riot in Rockdale, Texas, just outside of Austin, where they their first site was, you know, 500, let's call it 500 megawatts. In peak time in Texas, they can turn off, thereby putting 500 megawatts back into the grid to be used by, you know, presumably residential hospitals and the like. So when the next winter storm, whomever comes, you know, like Riot did then, like they do during the summer when we have massive demand spikes, they can turn off. That is in direct conflict to Berkshire Hathaway investing a lot of money and locking in a 10% rate of return. The other thing with the Berkshire Hathaway deal was that on my energy bill every month, I would have seen a line item that would have been like, again, I forget what the number is, but it's like $2 a month that it would just be a line item. And it was this insurance that I, Lisa, am paying. And then, you know, the nail salon that's down the street, they're paying um, $20 a month. And then the Coca-Cola bottling factory that's, you know, a mile from me, they're paying $100 or $200 a month. So it's like, it's like you're paying disaster insurance premiums every month. So I would have been paying that disaster insurance premium out of my own pocket so that Berkshire Hathaway could have a guaranteed rate of return on those peaker plants. When it's we've solved that problem through the free market with Bitcoin miners, right? Riot went to the market and coordinated capital. They, you know, borrowed money to to dig their site out and put machines there and they invested in people that could come in and do the work. They did that all on their own with no state subsidy. It didn't cost me anything. And it's providing the same direct result. So when people get angry at the Bitcoin miners and say, oh, the Bitcoin miners are the reason why there's not enough power on the Texas grid, that is completely ignorant and is an indication that the person has not done any homework and believes everything they hear on TV. It's just wrong. Yeah, it's funny listening to your explanation there. I'm in British Columbia, Canada, and our energy up here is nationalized. It's basically impossible to get a a Bitcoin mining 
business license in the province of BC right now, uh, even though all, for all of these reasons you just listed, uh, it would be beneficial for, I mean, we, we produce tons of energy up here. It's like an intellectual brain drain. The same thing that happened with ESG funds. So hopefully these things evolve over time. Yeah, I mean, I, again, like game theory will play out, you know, somewhere it will be, it will become evident that other countries are building a stack of Bitcoin and we will then feel like we need to do that. And so, you know, maybe the U.S. has some Bitcoin on their balance sheet because they've confiscated it over the years. We're going to need more. The person with the most in their treasury wins, right? The, the person with the strongest military wins. The only way, you know, we got out of World War II. We had the most gold of, of any country. We came out just swinging. Our economy, you know, was put back together, thriving that we were building and other countries were really struggling. They were trying to repair their cities that had been blown to pieces. We have, if we're going to maintain our status as the strongest country in the world, we need a treasury to back that up. We can't, you know, clearly I think everyone now understands that printing money isn't the solution. In fact, I mean, not to like launch into another political, I don't want to like launch into, you know, someone like shooting at me on the street, but you know, I, I had had a conversation not too long ago with a friend of mine who's you know, like mid sixties guy and very drawn into the conflict between Israel and Hamas, and he's very eager to go get involved in the war. And he's like, "Oh, if they'd let me, I'd go fight." And I'm like, "Okay, assume that I agree with you philosophically. How do we pay for going to war?" How, how do we pay for what we've done to support this effort so far? And he just couldn't get his brain around the fact that it, to him, it didn't matter how we were going to pay for it. It was our absolute moral imperative as the world's police to go and do this thing. Not that I disagree. So leave my opinion out of it entirely. I just think we can't afford to do it. But I said to him, you know, not to like pick another scab, but who's going? right? Like our military has shrunk. We have so many grounded F-18s. It's frightening. We have aircraft carriers that are grounded because there's no parts. And who are the people, right? Like you're going to get the kid who lives in his parents' basement on the front line of a war. Like we're not the same. I know that, and I, this is what I said to him. I was like, look, I know that you watch like the war movies and Private Ryan on repeat. And those are the images that you have in your mind of who would go and fight. And that's not the same person today as it was in the 1940s, right? The 18-year-olds are not the same. My daughter is 20. I see her friends. They're not the same. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it's a, it's an interesting parallel because you know, sort of the, the straw that broke the the camel's back with the fall of Rome was when they didn't have the money to pay soldiers and the soldiers stopped accepting, you know, worse and worse forms of money as payment. Uh, it's, uh, so that's, a, that's an interesting, yeah, uh, an interesting point to make. I do think, it, you know, the U.S. political arena in general right now is a fascinating space for Bitcoin it's presidential election year, and you have for the first time ever multiple candidates that are talking about Bitcoin, and it's so it's it's definitely going to be a thing on campaign trail as we go through the rest of the year. I think at the same time, you know, it's it's also like a very divisive. Like I want to talk to you a little bit about how you, know, you have states like Texas and Wyoming coming out. You know, it's increasingly pro Bitcoin, and then you have New York, and you have other states where it's it's a little bit more icy, like. How do you see this playing out over the short term? And what do you think, what do you expect to see out of Bitcoin in the in the presidential race? I think, sadly, it becomes a non-event, right? I, th I think that we, as much as I was cheering on the candidates that came to Lee Bratcher's North American Blockchain Summit in Fort Worth in November, and I was cheering them on, thought they were all fabulous, and they all got up on stage and said they were going to protect private property rights and protect self-custody, and they were pro-Bitcoin. I'm not sure the mainstream American is ready to hear that yet. You know, maybe the ETF speeds up not adoption of Bitcoin, but knowledge of Bitcoin and knowledge of how it reinforces a free market. That would be my hope, is that we begin to bring the conversation back to what matters to most Americans. 
And I think a lot of our political divisiveness is because we talk about, you know, what's on either end, right? Let's protect these people that are on either end. And I really think that we need to be protecting, you know, the bulk of Americans, energy security, fiscal security, protecting their retirement accounts, right? And and approving the ETF for Bitcoin, the, the 11 ETFs for Bitcoin was the first step of protecting retirement accounts for individuals, because it's the first time you can opt out of a dollar-based system, if you will. Because if you're in, if you're a 60-40 investor and you think that you're diversified because you own bonds and you own, you know, new technology, right? Let's say that you own everything in between. You own dollars at the end of the day. You own company and people and dollars that are directly affected by 12 people that serve as officers of a non-federal federal bank. It's dumb. So I don't know who brings the conversation back to the middle. Thank goodness for Texas and Wyoming. But look at Texas and Wyoming. We're energy rich, gritty people, you know, hardworking entrepreneurs, uh, risk takers who have a firm belief of, you know, liberty, freedom and private property rights and want to protect those. Yeah. I mean, one thing I, I think is true is skyrocketing cost of living is apolitical. And, and, you know, there, there may be different political, the different sides may have different ways to tackle it. But it, I think it, it is something that it affects everybody evenly or maybe not everybody. It affects the, the majority of people evenly, regardless of which way they want to vote. And so that that will be an interesting, like you said, how how it disseminates into kind of the zeitgeist will be maybe one of the most interesting things to watch. Can I give you one example on that? It's a quick one. So I, I actually wrote this down. This was I heard Preston Pish say this again, like I write I'm, I'm a note taker. So he was giving the example that, you know, in the area where he lives in January of 2020, the median cost of a home was $500,000. And today the same house is a million. So four years later, 100% increase. The interest rate change from 2020. So if you had a mortgage in 2020, you know, you were paying around 3%. 2024, you're paying around 7 So your monthly payment is not double. Your monthly payment is 3.2 times higher than that of four years ago. But if you are one of the crazy people like us and you denominate in Bitcoin, that house in 2020 was 70 Bitcoin. That house in 2024 is 22 Bitcoin. That's a 68% reduction in the cost of the house if you're a Bitcoiner. That light is going to start to go on for people. It might be one person at a time, but that light's going to start to go on. And then other people are going to get on this train with us. Yeah, I, I almost wanted to just sit and let that sink in for a second because you praise that so beautifully. And it's, it's not just houses. Yeah, I mean, houses are one thing that the pricing of houses has completely run away and it's got co- totally stupid. But, you know, the price of orange juice or eggs or whatever you want to do, you can, you know, things priced in Bitcoin get cheaper over time because of this concept that Bitcoin is finite. And, it, and, it, and it's an idea that like you, you can't unlearn that. Right. So I feel like once once people have learned it, it, it's like this is an idea that just gets shared. And so I feel like we're we're headed for a really exciting time where ideas it's this idea of Parker's idea of gradually and then suddenly, you know, it's it's a handful of people talking about it at the start that sound crazy until a lot of people are talking about it. And then all of a sudden, like there's just this threshold understanding of like, hey, wait a second, our money, you know, life is becoming unaffordable because our money constantly buys less tomorrow than it does today. And it's impossible for us to earn enough money when it's con- constantly becoming less valuable. Yeah. So a- another interesting piece of research that's out there is Fidelity published, I think it was like late October of 2023. They published a piece of research that said, you know, like, I think it was titled like, here are 10 key points investors should consider when evaluating Bitcoin, right? They manage four and a half trillion dollars They have 43 million investors and they are now publishing research that says investors should consider Bitcoin. Like they've done the math, right? They get the Preston Pish house example. They get the eggs example. You have to be able to preserve and grow wealth through some mechanism that's not correlated to the U.S. dollar. 
I wanted to ask you a question before we run too crazy long here. You're involved with Custodia Bank. And so this is this is the, the idea of sort of bringing Bitcoin into mainstream banking. And I, I'm just wondering if you could maybe give our listeners a little bit of an overview, maybe of just what do you think Bitcoin could become involved in traditional banking? Like, what, what might that look like? So I should have started by saying that, you know, nothing I've said today is the view of Custodia. Custodia is... Um, we are a bank. We're a Wyoming speedy chartered bank, special purpose depository institution bank. It's a charter that was created in the state of Wyoming, gives broad protection to digital asset owners. We are not FDIC insured. So those, those might be my disclaimers. Yeah, we are the first, you know, bank that's offering Bitcoin financial services in the United States. We serve only institutional clients. We have traditional bank accounts. We offer access to treasury management through um, a huge money market fund. So, you know, no longer do companies uh, need to hold significant cash that's earning zero yield. Now they have a, a product they can go in and out of with ease and with, you know, and, and attain yield. And then we, we have Bitcoin custody, which we built ourselves. It took the team two years to build it, more than two years, actually. We really focused on eliminating counterparty risk. And if you look at the solutions that are on the market currently, and if you look at procedurally what's inside of those solutions, so where people have to be, what is the technology, how many other layers, how many other companies are in the layers of the custody solution, right? Like if it's a huge custodian and they offer custody, they probably have two or three other vendors, fintechs that are involved in that process. We have zero. So we built it ourselves. We are a bank of Bitcoiners. I spend a lot of my time with the energy companies, obviously, and with the mining community. We really aim to serve them. And I the reception has been great in those communities. Where do I think Bitcoin goes with traditional banks? I think all banks eventually transact in Bitcoin, right? Banks currently can all custody hard assets. Banks are qualified custodians for gold. Banks, in my belief, all will be involved in Bitcoin. It's not instantaneous. Like I just said, it took Custodia two years to build the technology and, you know, get regulatory approval and go through pen tests, pass everything that we had to pass on the, uh, you know, exam front. It's, it's not a fast process, but everyone will eventually, you know, like I said, everybody will eventually get on this train. It's it's the only train to safety. Which leads me to another question I, I had been wanting to ask you, and I just remembered, but w without a time frame, what is Bitcoin's future? I think what you're asking is, is maybe I'll, I'll put words in your mouth. If you're asking about the price, I would really encourage people to get to the place. Allow yourself to understand that understanding Bitcoin has very little to do with the price, right? I would, and I tweeted the other day, I was being super sarcastic, but actually serious. If you think about Bitcoin price, you've lost the plot. The plot here is ensuring our own security, both nationally and personally, liberty, freedom, and private property, protecting the ideals that, American was, that America was built on. Um, Robert Breedlove said in an interview that she believes that, that Bitcoin is is more American than the U.S. Constitution. So setting that aside, setting aside my righteous lecture that I just gave you, I think that the, the price of Bitcoin just has to go higher. Sorry, so, so that actually wasn't a price question. I mean, in terms of what it means, I'll rephrase that and say, like, what is the future state of Bitcoin? And without having to guess what time frame, what, what is Bitcoin's, where is it going? What does it become? It becomes the transaction ledger of the world. It becomes a way for us to secure everything of value. For for some, that may be money. For others, that may be, you know, some sort of piece of other, you know, uh, other type of information. But it becomes the world's ledger. And it's enforced by the strength of the network, which is enforced by the amount of power that the network uses. So if you want your property rights preserved for the long term, you need to be cheering on, elect, you know, power usage in Bitcoin and know that power usage by Bitcoin is what's pushing forward all of the innovation inside of the energy space. You know, for, I went to a, an energy conference recently where they were talking about, you know, green hydrogen and blue hydrogen and all of these products that they're developing. And it's, I knew so many of the investment bankers that were there because they've been energy bankers their whole lives. 
And now they've all hopped on the the green train. What's wrong with the green train? The green train is so rooted in subsidies by the government, right? The green train is the $2 tax on my power bill. It might not be directly on my power bill, but will you? I, we will end up paying it somewhere. Bitcoin allows for free market incentives to rule. It's the riots building. It's, you know, it's marathon mining on methane and finding other use cases for Bitcoin mining. At some point, Tesla's going to have to turn a profit on their own. For our listeners who want to find more of your of your content, Lisa, where, where can where can they find you online? I'm probably on Twitter more frequently than not. I do offer if people are listening and, you know, you want to chat for 15 minutes, please reach out. I, I love having conversations with people that say that they heard podcast and they want to know more about, hey, I heard you talk about the um, Berkshire Hathaway energy stuff in Texas. Can I talk to you? Can you point me in the direction of more information? Or, hey, I, I heard you talk about the Bitcoin miner that's, you know, mining out on Waha. And I've, you know, my grandparents have some property. I want to know how to do that. Please reach out to me. I, I do reply to DMs. I do reply on LinkedIn. I have a website, lisahuff.io. Go there. It's, I haven't updated it in a while, but I'm I'm super easy to find, and I I'm very appreciative when people reach out and and share you know what their story is, where they are in the journey. Probably at the probably one of the first times I offered to do this through a podcast, I had a guy reach out who works for Intergy. So a, it's a big power company also. And they they have these gigantic wind turbines. And he had written a paper on how these wind turbines could operate more efficiently with using Bitcoin mining, right? Like, I love that. Like, people have are so creative. They've done so much work and it's not out in the public. I'm so honored that people want to share those things. Very cool. This has been a real treat, Lisa. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Love to have you back sometime. I'd, I'd love it. Thank you for asking me. I mean, we met on Twitter. We did. Yeah. And then in person. It's a never ending spider web of uh, people who join the Bitcoin community over time. And, uh, I, you know, I think you're, you're such a good example of how accessible people are. And there is a, a great aspect of the community that really is about helping other people get involved. And, and it's stuff like this. So, yeah. Thank you for your podcast. You're amazing. Keep doing it. We're trying one show at a time. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Block Reward. We're trying to do something different here, creating accessible conversations meant for people who aren't obsessed with Bitcoin. If you found this episode informative and engaging, hit that subscribe button to make sure you stay updated with future episodes. Your feedback matters. We'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to share your reviews and help us with our goal of creating Bitcoin content that is simple and easy to understand. Bitcoin has an important role to play in the future of finance. It will change the way we save, spend, and invest. Discover why Bitcoin offers a game-changing opportunity for forward-thinking employers by visiting BlockRewards.ca. BlockRewards' mission is helping Canadian employers implement strategies for integrating Bitcoin into compensation and benefits. Supercharge your recruitment and retention strategies and help your team members plan for the rising cost of living by rewarding their work with the hardest money ever invented. Special thanks to our top sponsor, Paramount Employee Benefits Consulting, Canada's only Bitcoin-forward benefits and pension advisory. For more information, find them at ParamountBenefits.ca. Big shout out to Podigy, our production team that makes all this possible, and BMX Escape for producing our music. Bitcoin is an expansive and dense topic many people walk away from early. To Bitcoin enthusiasts looking for that podcast they can share with friends, family, and colleagues, one they'll actually listen to, we hope that is us. The content of these conversations is meant to be provided for information purposes only. Nothing here is investment advice. Bitcoin is a big topic. Be sure to do your own research before making any personal financial decisions. Thanks for listening. 